If you don't know me, my name's Leah. Uh, I typically am part of the morning service, morning church here at Scum. I'll be sharing today, or speaking today. Um, let's start with a little bit of background about myself. When I was 18 years old, I was diagnosed with clinical depression. I was going through a time in my life of really great trials of illnesses, of deaths, deaths of my grandmother, my dog, you know, people who loved me and supported me. And it was probably some of the darkest months of my life. Um, I had suicidal thoughts that I was going to do something once to myself, but eventually got treatment. And for the last 13 years, I have had times when thanks to treatment and God's grace, I have been healthy and I've had proper perspective on life and I've been hopeful and able to function much like a normal person. But I've also had other times when I feel that life is despairing. I begin to sound like the author of Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless and things feel too hard. I wonder why life is so full of suffering. At those times, I can't be past my pain. In those dark moments, I can't see God. I can't feel his presence. I don't have faith. All I see are the sufferings around me, the things around me that are only physical. There's not, I don't see spiritual. I don't see God there. It's, it's the, the bills to be paid, diapers to be changed, meals to be cooked. And I start to despair inside because really if all that this is all that there is if this physical world is all that there is what is the point I don't think my conclusions are all that wrong in fact I think it's scriptural life without God is meaningless life without hope is meaningless if life is only what we can see what we can touch what we can understand scientifically, as some argue, that's all that there is. If there's no God, why in the world should we care? I wonder if Daniel ever felt that way. If this is your first time here or haven't been here in a while, we're going through the book of Daniel. And we've already been through chapters 1 through 6 and seen Daniel experience some fairly remarkable things that God has done. We've seen them, what are some of the stories? Seen them being saved from the fiery furnace. Seen Daniel saved from the lion's den. We've seen Nebuchadnezzar have these crazy dreams. We've seen them partially come true. We've seen Daniel being used in those dreams to interpret them. God has been faithful to these people. And we're coming to chapter 7. Here in Daniel. And chapter 7 is kind of interesting because while we've gone through many years of exile from chapters 1 through 6, in chapter 7 we're actually going back several years to the beginning of the reign of King Belshazzar. Verse 1 tells us that it was the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And at this time, the exile, people from Israel have been in exile for over 52 years. They were still in exile for 52 years from the time of Nebuchadnezzar when many of them came till now there have been five kings on the throne in Babylon. Five kings. So maybe they had some good rapport with Nebuchadnezzar. That's the only king that we've mentioned in Daniel up until this point 
chapters 1 through 4, that Daniel has had a good relationship with. There have been other kings that have been on the throne that maybe Daniel was nothing to them. Maybe the Jews were no longer important at all. And now we have this other king, King Belshazzar, and he does not trust Daniel. Daniel is not in a place of authority in this kingdom anymore. Most likely, he cares very little for the Jews. And as we already saw in chapter 7, he had zero respect for Yahweh, the God of Israel. Is there hope? Is there hope for the Israelites? If you think about Israel, I want you to think about the covenants of the Old Testament. The covenants, the promises God made to Abraham that they would become a people and have a land, that he would be with them and he would be their God and they would be a blessing to the nations. That was the first covenant. Then we have, going through history, we have the Mosaic Covenant where they they have a promise that God will be their God and they will be their people. And they they promise to be there for one another. And and then we have the Davidic Covenant. And if you've been in our class, this should be just a great refresher for you. If you haven't on the Old Testament, here you go. The Davidic Covenant where we are right now in our class, God promised to David that there would always be a descendant of his line on the throne in Israel. That there would always be a descendant of David on the throne of Israel. But now Israel, people have been in exile for over 50 years. There is no king on the throne in Jerusalem. The promises of God seem to have fallen short. They are not in their land. They are a people. They have no king. Is there hope? Will he keep his promises? Or is all of this, this life in exile, this life of pain, is this meaningless too? We go back to verse 1, and we're going to get into this chapter now. So if you have the scriptures, please put them up on the screen. Thank you. Or if you have your Bible, please turn there with me. Chapter one, or Chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. I'm going to stop here already, okay? (laughs) In the past, did Daniel have dreams? Have we heard of any dreams of Daniel yet? No, he was the interpreter of the dreams. This is the first dream in the book of Daniel, where Daniel has a dream, and the rest of the book is basically full of visions that Daniel receives from the Lord. These dreams are bizarre. They fall into a category of literature called apocalyptic literature. And a simple definition for apocalyptic is the disclosure of divine mysteries by angelic mediators. The disclosure of divine mysteries by angelic mediators. Some other people have said this is a disclosure of a heavenly perspective, God's perspective of what's going on in earth, on earth in history. So it's God's, what God sees when he sees history. It's full of bizarre symbolism and imagery. You know, we, we'll see here a lot of beasts. Um, Revelation, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, that's also apocalyptic literature. It's, it's just really bizarre imagery, really difficult to interpret. Probably the only thing that's similar between most of the apocalyptic literature is that it's strange, like it's different. <laughs> There's not much there that's the same. So it's hard to interpret, but it's meant to be a picture. It's meant to be something that is a vision in your own mind when you hear it. So as we read or as you read on the screen, you know, 
picture what we're reading or, or close your eyes and follow along and imagine with me what it is that he sees. Verse 2. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven turning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that stood on two feet like a human being, and a human mind was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human, a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Let's stop there. Can you imagine that? We had a fun idea to ask a child to draw, give us perspective. So if you have the slides of the drawings, Will, here's the first beast. Is that what you imagined? Lion. A lion with wings of an eagle. These beasts represent the same kingdoms and the kings of the, of the, four, the four kingdoms that we already saw in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. If you guys remember that, each king, each um, part of a great statue represented a different kingdom of the world. So here we have lion, and it was lifted up. This is Babylon. Scholars say this is Babylon. And actually, when you think about it, when you look at this verses, in verse 4, it says, "The, The lion was lifted up from the ground, so it stood on two feet like a human being, and a human mind was given to it. Remember with Nebuchadnezzar, he had a vision in chapter 4, when he, and he went crazy as a result of this vision because he didn't humble himself before God. He, he began to eat like an animal. He acted like an animal. And then at the end of this time period, he repented, and he was given a human mind again. So this beast being given a human mind, this, is, this is really should call to mind what we already saw about Nebuchadnezzar. Um, the second beast, we have the bear. Those are the three ribs in its mouth, I think. <laughs> Get up and eat your full. And then we have, and this was um, the Medo-Persian kingdom. Finally, second or third, we have a leopard with four heads, which represent the, um, this is Greece, the four kingdoms of Greece. And then finally, we have the fourth beast with the ten horns. And the horn that's speaking, great, great destruction. So we can, we can kind of, we can see these beasts representing different kingdoms. 
But it seems in the description of this fourth beast that this beast has greater terror than the others. It is not described as an animal like the other beasts. The other beasts are giving us an idea that we can kind of picture, something like a lion or a leopard. This one is just said that he's terrifying and frightening and very powerful with large iron teeth, crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It could be a kingdom of this world like the others, or it could be something else, and we're going to come back to this, so keep that in mind. Now we have a second scene in Daniel's vision with verses 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the book was opened. Ancient of days, this is God, God the Father, the one who has been and will be, and is the one who was and is and is to come. He is as ancient as the days before time began. The white has a picture. We, we can carry on. We understand this picture. White of snow, purity. God the Father is pure, holy. He represents holiness. And the fire represents judgment. There's fire all over these verses, isn't there? The true holy one, the God of heaven, the ancient of days, has come to judge. He has come to judge the rulers. We often balk at the idea of God as judge. I do. I don't like thinking of God as judge. But at the same time, I crave justice. We cry out for things in this world to be made right, don't we? When there's a mass shooting in our communities, we mourn and weep for those who were killed. When a child is abducted, we search for her. When young boys are taken and forced, and young girls too, forced into the sex trade, we want to do everything that we can to stop that from happening. And we say, that is not right. And we try to change our laws to prevent it from ever happening again. But sometimes the laws are not good enough, and we can't find the perpetrators. We can't do enough for the victims. God, when he comes and he brings justice to these kingdoms that wreaked havoc on so many other countries around them, they just sought their own glory. God comes and he judges and brings justice. Verse 11, it says, Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. The boastful words. This horn, this, this king, has no sense of God's justice. Or just no sense of who God is. He continues to speak boastfully. I watched as he kept speaking, and I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had, also, had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. God, the Holy One, the Ancient of Days, brings justice. His rule... His judgments are right, and he makes things right. Now we move on to a third scene in this passage, in this vision. Verse 13, in my vision at night I looked, 
And there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Who is this one like a son of man? One like a son of man. It could be interpreted even as one like a human being. It could be just another man. In some ways it echoes the descriptions of the beast because they were like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard, kind of like that. All not really quite what they are described to be. Something's different. And in verse 14, it describes what he's given. He has given authority, glory, sovereign power. Keep going down. His, his dominion is everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He is given authority like a king. Could this be the promised one? The king of Israel who God said would always be on the throne? And we look and it says that all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. This is not just a man or an earthly king. This is God. For no one receives worship except God himself. We're going to keep on with the vision. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there, probably an angel, and asked him the meaning of all of this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the, the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Note that. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth, fourth beast, which was so different from all of the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth and that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. You know, some people argue that this is just Rome. And maybe there are some arguments that it could be Rome. And maybe that works. But the 
description of this beast is so grotesque, and like I already said, it's so different than the other kings. It calls to mind the beasts of Revelation, right? It calls to mind the... Oh, now I'm forgetting what he actually is. The dragon? The dragon who destroys the whole earth. And his little person we call the Antichrist who comes to destroy the people of God. Verse 21 calls this, this horn someone who is waging war against the holy people and defeating him, them. And in 25, the horn is one who will speak against the Most High, oppress his holy people, try to, and try to change the set times and the laws. In other words, he will blasphemy God and his people and try to be God who alone has control over time and the laws. This horn is overstepping its bounds. And we, can, we have seen people in history who are like this, right? Most generations can identify at least somebody who has been in the recent history who looks like maybe that could be the Antichrist. Most recently, we might think of Hitler. He oppressed the holy people of God, the Jews. He himself tried to be a god and put down the god of Christianity, really deceiving the church in, in Germany at the time. And he tried to control things that were beyond his reach. When we go to 26, it says the court will sit and his power will be taken away. Satan doesn't know when the time will come, when he will actually have to face God in judgment. And he keeps preparing people throughout history as little antichrist because he thinks maybe this will be it. And so these people are being like groomed by him into little antichrist. I can't imagine if Hitler wasn't it what the final antichrist will be like. I thank God that the court will sit, his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Three times in the explanation of this dream, we have the statement, or at least the description of, the holy people receiving the kingdom and possessing it forever. At a time when the Israelites were probably feeling at their lowest, they have been in exile for over 50 years. They're wondering if God really is going to keep his promises that they will have a king on the throne. God promises through this vision of where God shows Daniel the heavenly realms and what is really happening. He shows them from a heavenly perspective what is happening, that they will receive the kingdom. They will possess the kingdom. One day these promises will be fulfilled. Daniel closes with this. This is the end of the, matter, of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. My face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Daniel is deeply troubled. Even though we have these promises that this will happen, there will be a time of great suffering for the people. Things will not be easy. But they have the hope of knowing the end. They have the hope God has given them. What's the word? A spoiler, thank you. <laughs> spoiler alert, God has shown them the end from the beginning. They already know what's going to happen. 
They already know. The Son of Man will come. He'll be given authority, glory, sovereign power. All will worship him, and his dominion will not be destroyed. Did you know that Jesus' favorite name for himself, his favorite title for himself was not Messiah or Christ or Son of God, but the Son of Man? He used the title Son of Man more than any other name for himself. Some argue that this is because he's trying to get them to understand that he is God incarnate in a human form. Maybe that's true. It probably is partially true. And others say there was such a limited understanding of who the Son of Man really was that he could define for the people who he was without them having presuppositions in their head. And that's true, too. But we should note that when Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin in Mark 14, and they accused him, and they brought every accusation against him, and they asked him, are you the Messiah? He said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. When they heard this, the high priest tore his robes, said, what else do we need to hear? He, this man, is deserving of death. They took him and beat him and crucified him. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Ephesians 1, verse 20. If you don't have a Bible, I think it should. Yeah, there it is on the screen. Talking about God, it says, He raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. While Daniel 7 is about the end times and has a sense of how things will turn out in the end, we still live in history. Christ died 2,000 years ago, and immediately Christ was exalted. This world has not seen its end yet. We, it has not come to its end. Yet the Son of Man has already been given all authority, all rule, all power over the kingdoms and authorities of this world as well as in the heavens. The kingdom of heaven, Christ always said, it's here. It's coming now. It's not in its completion. We still look forward to and hope for the fulfillment of the new heavens and new earth. We still trust that God's promise that one day all tears will be wiped from our eyes, that there will be no more death, there'll be no more mourning, no more pain, and we have great confidence that the kingdom of heaven will come, but we also can have a confidence that it begins here today. Jesus taught this and exemplified it when he was here in his earthly ministry. In Luke 4, when he was just starting out, Jesus was teaching in the synagogues, and he was received the scroll of Isaiah, and he turned to Isaiah 61, and he said, read these words, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery for the sight of the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendants, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He said to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today you are free. Today you can see the Lord clearly. Today you're free from sin, from oppression, from slavery. You can live in the Lord's favor today. And when Jesus sent out his disciples to minister and to preach the good news, he gave them these instructions in Matthew 10, 7. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have of leprosy. In other words, heal them who are ostracized from your community and bring them back in. Drive out the demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. And they did. And people's lives were changed. Jesus healed people all over the place. He raised children from the dead. He forgave people of their sins. The point was not just for a physical, new physical life, but God gave them a new spiritual life as well through Jesus because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Keep reading in Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead in your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are dishonest or disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we possess the kingdom. In Christ, we have already been raised up to the heavenly realms. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God has made us alive in Christ. Back in Ephesians 1.19, Paul writes that the hope he, ha he hopes and prays that we would know his incomparably great power for us who believe. The same power that raised, Christ, that raised Christ from the dead is available to us. He saved us to bless us, not just in the coming hope of heaven, in which we do set our eyes on and hope and for and rejoice that it is coming. But God saved us to bless us and change us here on earth with the power to overcome our sin nature so we can experience the life he desires us to live and to be the people he created us to be beginning now. In Christ, we have victory. We know that in the end, we will be with heaven and we will be with Jesus. But now, we are alive in Christ. We are no longer in a position of slavery to sin. Two weeks ago, Jesse mentioned our lack of understanding of our situation in Christ. And we think to ourselves, 
this is just who I am. This is all that I am. You can't tell me to change. This is who I am. No. Ephesians 2 says this is not who you are. You are raised up in Christ to be people of God. Thank you. (laughs) There is a wonderful series of children's books called Tales of the Kingdom. I don't know if you've heard of them. At least one person has. Get it? If you're an adult and don't have children, read it. It's amazing. And it's so good, devotional material. In this kingdom, the people live their lives serving the king throughout their tasks. They live in a great park. And they each have their tasks in keeping the park running, okay? They might not seem like great people, and they're very aware of their own screw-ups and failures. They feel ashamed and embarrassed that the king might notice who they truly are, who they think they truly are. But every so often, there is a great celebration in the park, and all the people are invited. In order to enter the celebration, they must first pass through the sacred flames into the inmost circle. There's a story of the apprentice juggler who is preparing to go into the go into the great celebration, and he's watching as people pass through the flames. He saw each one become real as he or she did so. For the sacred flame showed persons not as they seemed, but as they truly were. All disguises were gone. A young boy is a hero. A funny old caretaker is the ranger commander, chief protector of the park and intimate advisor to the king himself. And a beggar is the king. You are not who you feel you are. In Christ, you've been raised up to a position of power. You've been raised up into a new creation. And all the power of the Spirit resides in you so that you can live. Do you believe it? This should change how we live. Sometimes I don't believe it. I have my bouts of depression and despair and I forget. But nothing brings me out of my sense of self-loathing. I don't know another word. Often self-hatred than remembering that God loves me greater than I can love myself. He loves me and my children greater than I can love my children. And if you're a parent, you know that's tough. That's a lot of love. This changes how we live. And we can live with the confidence of knowing the end. Someone who knows that they will win in the end does not despair in the midst of hardship. If you have the assurance that you're, if you're playing on a sporting team, like a soccer team or something, and you know that your team can beat this other team because basically you're the first seed and they're the 18th seed, you don't just sit on the ground and say, I don't have to do anything. I'm going to win. Oh, you wouldn't win if you did that. If you know the outcome, though, you can continue on and hope and work hard and persevere in the power of God. I'm not saying this is your power of your own self. Hear me well. But we can have hope and know with great confidence and assurance that we'll get through this and that one day we will have eternal life that we're really longing for. The early Christians were so certain of their inheritance that one day they would inherit the kingdom of heaven. 
that they were able to rejoice in the midst of their great trials and persecutions. Christians who are persecuted around the world today have greater hope than many Americans, I think, even though they are being killed. They're able to love their enemies, and they often die praising God, knowing that he will carry them through. In Christ, we can live in the confidence that we will possess the kingdom and that we possess it now. We will possess the kingdom and we can possess it now. I am encouraged this week to remember Ephesians 2. I am not just my depression. I am not my sins, my bad habits, my failures. You are not. In Christ, you are not your sins anymore. You are alive. You can have victory. Romans 8 says we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Because what can separate us from the love of God? We may feel sometimes that all there is to life is what we can see and touch. But when God opens our eyes to the reality of the spiritual realm, we can know who we truly are and that we possess the kingdom. Please close your eyes and pray with me right now. Lord, Heavenly Father, I don't know each person here. I don't know their heart. I don't know where they are with you. Lord, if people do not believe, God, give them belief. Bring them to you. May they have their eyes open to the true reality of what you came to do for them. May they be freed from their death and their sin and be brought to life through belief in you. And for those of us who are, who profess to be Christians, God, I pray that we would grasp the hope that is here in the scriptures. I pray that we would live out the hope here in scriptures and not get caught up in feeling like we are not worth it. Because you, Lord, have decided that we are worth it. You came and you died for us. And you rose again so that we could have life. Lord, I pray that we would grasp it. And I pray that we would encourage one another and point out to one another what we see God doing in their lives. Because sometimes we need someone else to show us what you're doing. But God, please bind this community together in you. May we see what you're doing when we don't always see it, when we feel that life is too hard, God, maybe we have hope in you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.